Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Alan, I heard, and I was taught, that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the deep sea, and that more people have been to the moon than have been to the deep sea. This is a classic case of self-flagellation in deep sea science. It's one of the things that bugs me probably the most. There's this phrase that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deep sea, and it's, 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 it is just ridiculous. It's one of these misleading statements that it's used in almost every deep sea-related article or speech or media coverage or whatever it may be. But what other scientific discipline would insist on opening any dialogue whether written or verbal, with a statement about how little you know about your own discipline. This subject is something that came to light. I was uh, asked to review the deep sea episode of Blue Planet, so I watched it. And of course it starts off, we know more about the surface of, wait a minute, it wasn't the moon. It wasn't the moon this time. It was, we know more about the surface of Mars than we know about the deep sea. So I made it a personal quest to find out where on earth this stupid phrase came from. And it gets even more ridiculous. So the earliest mention of this statement I could find came from somebody called George Deacon who published an article in the Journal of Navigation, and he was quoting a guy called Sir Edward Bullard, who died 40 years ago, is saying it. So this statement was published 67 years ago, right? This is where the origin of the statement that we're still using on a regular basis. Have we learned anything since then? Well, we've done quite a lot since then. I think we've done a lot in the deep sea and the moon since then. So this statement was originated 15 years before the moon landings, and at a time where I guess we knew not that much about the surface of the moon either. Now, it gets interesting when you think about this upgrade from the Moon to Mars, and when did that appear? So, my sleuthing, it happened around 2010. So, does that mean then we know more about Mars now than we did about the Moon in 1953? Or does that mean that we still know more about an icy, lifeless, spherical rock drifting in a vacuum in 1953 than the vast oceans of our planet that host millions of species over hundreds of habitat with an inconceivable number of geological, biological and chemical interactions? So, I personally think we know quite a lot about the deep sea. Not everything, but we know a lot. But the Moon and Mars are just a totally unfair comparison because it's just not the same thing. I know it comes under exploration and I know it comes under sort of these amazing feats of human curiosity and so on, but it's just not the same thing. So let's look at the Moon, for example. The Moon is about 3,500 kilometres in diameter, right? Australia is wider than the Moon's diameter. So the Moon's not that big, for starters. The North Atlantic has got a greater footprint than the entire lunar surface. I guess people don't normally think about that. You always think of the Moon as being huge, but the North Atlantic is bigger than the Moon. So the surface area of the Moon is only about 7.5% of that of Earth, and 70% of the Moon is not covered with opaque seawater. <laughs> right, so give, give yourself a fighting chance. The Moon isn't sitting under an average of 4,000 metres of water, so imaging the surface of a planet from orbiting satellites is considerably more difficult when there's a gaseous atmosphere, of which I think Earth is, what, about 16 kilometres thick, and it's hiding underneath this blue veneer of seawater. Sometimes the statement's used, and I think they're trying to infer that we've mapped more of the Moon than the oceans. But there's a whole argument about, well, what constitutes this mapping? It depends on the types of resolution, whether or not it's mapped to very high resolution or very low resolution, and so what. But this, the surface of the Earth, which is land, is bigger than the Moon. And you can go on Google Earth, and that's the easy bit. So it's still not really like for like. But when you look at the current maps of the seafloor now, we divide it up into grid cells, and 82% of those grid cells don't have a single depth measurement. So that's what people use to say, oh, no, we know nothing about the oceans. That's percentage of knowledge. Just divide that by number of grid cells. Basically, yeah. 82% of the ocean we don't have depth measurements for, real ones. It's all kind of derived from satellite stuff. So that means we have mapped about 18%. So the total area of the ocean would be about 360 million square kilometres. 18% of that is still almost twice the total area of the moon. 
So you could argue that we've mapped to a pretty good resolution twice the lunar surface underwater at 4,000 metres average. So it depends what you call knowing about it. Mapping doesn't necessarily mean you know about it. It just means you could create a picture of the landscape. It doesn't necessarily mean you understand its importance or what it does or how it changes or any kind of seasonality and so on. So why would you then in deep sea biology say there's less known about deep sea biology than a moon that has no biology at all? We could argue that we know more about my desk than we know about the abyssal plains because there's less attributes to know about. Percentage-wise, it's probably really high. So anyway, this statement is stupid. It's from 60-some years ago, and it was in a different time. It was long before the Apollo missions. It was long before any major deep-sea exploration anyway. The next one that really bugs me as well is more people have been to the moon than have been to the deepest point on Earth. Again, so what? But let's have a look at it. Is that really a fair comparison? Because the deepest point in the world's ocean is Challenger Deep, right? Mariana Trench. 10,925 metres, plus or minus 15. So the area of Challenger Deep is, let's say, for argument's sake, 14 square kilometres. The moon has a surface area of 38 million square kilometres, which is equivalent to about 7.5% of the Earth. So between 1969 and 1972, six of the Apollo missions put 12 people on the moon. So are we really doing a fair comparison here? Because we're talking about delivering 12 people to an area the size of 38 million square kilometres versus the deepest point in the world, which until recently was about three, to a target of 14 square kilometres. So it's perhaps not a useful analogy is because the technology, the cost and the effort in these types of exploration are, are as polarised as the types of environment they explore. So I don't think we should do deep sea exploration injustice through unfair analogies like this. So most deep submergence vehicles or submersibles are operational in the top 1,000 metres. There are a few that go to 4,000 metres or have gone to 4,000 metres. And there are some that are rated to 6,000 metres and there are a very few historically and currently that can go all the way. But to get to 6,000 metres, you've got a 98% coverage of the seafloor. So it's that 2%, right? If, you, if you're going to go for the hero dives and the hero stories of who got to the top, who got the deepest, you know, if you want to go into that comparing with the moon stuff, let's rather than say who got to Challenger Deep, who got to that 14 square kilometres of the bottom, how many people have got to that last 2% who have broken that six or 7,000 metre mark in something that could go all the way? It becomes much more interesting. Currently, there are only two operational submersibles capable of getting to 6,000 metres. And that's the Chinese submersible and the Japanese submersible, but they're not rated to full ocean depth. So to get to six and a half or 7,000 metres with no subs means that you've gone to the maximum depth they can go to. So let's take 7,000 metres as cutoff. Who's been deeper than that and who could have gone all the way but didn't because they were doing it for science and not for hero dives? So if you tally up those who have only just crossed the Hadle boundary these, to these other submersibles, that it's probably actually quite a lot. But when you go to that bottom 2%, it's very, very little. So if you ask people, how many people have been to the bottom of Challenger Deep? They would probably say Picard and Walsh in 1960 and James Cameron in 2012. But I think it's much more interesting than that because there were other subs that did some really deep stuff in that bottom 2% long before any of these other subs came along. The one in particular is called the Archimed, which is a French Navy submarine. It was commissioned in 1961. It actually did 226 dives, covered the Japan Trench, Puerto Rico Trench, it worked off the Azores, Mediterranean. 26 of those dives were deeper than 5,000 metres, and of those, 17 were deeper than 6,000. Of those, 11 were deeper than 7,000. So that's quite impressive, right? And nobody's really heard of the Archimed, and it was partly because they were doing good science and doing some really interesting work all over the world. But at the same time, Trieste had banged the deepest place in the world, and that's the one that stamped in everybody's psyche, and nobody really bothered about this other one, even though it was doing more and actually doing real exploration and so on. As a community, we got so much more from the Archimed. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these guys were going extraordinarily deep. They should be up there in the, the Hall of Fame, if you like. So if you take the Trieste, the Limiting Factor, the Deep Sea Challenger and the Archimedes, these are these four subs that have been very, very deep. 
So there's been 39 full ocean depth submersible dives to depths greater than 7,000 metres, and that delivered 30 people to the bottom 2% of the planet. And the Archimede put 13 people to depth greater than 7,000 metres before Neil Armstrong ever landed on the moon. So 13 people had been beyond 7 kilometres underwater before the Apollo programme, and nobody seems to care about that. We're still barking about more people have stood on the moon that have been to Challenge Deep. I don't think that's altogether fair, but I think you've got to acknowledge the fact that the Apollo missions and deep submergence explorations are equally as important to their fields. But the cost and the effort and the delivery of these things are very different. Until recently, to become an astronaut, you have to go through this horrendous selection process, but now if you want to dive Challenger Deep, you can just pay for it. So, comparing these two disciplines seems a total injustice to deep sea explorers, I think. An important point to consider is why did it take so long to double the number of dives from 60 years ago? I think that's a true thing. It's not comparing it with space. It's how come the Apollo mission finished and no one's been back? And how come it took 60 years for people to follow in Don Walsh's footsteps? That's a big issue. And interesting, there's parallels there, because the, the new sort of renaissance and Space exploration has been privately funded, as the deep submersible projects in the deep sea is privately funded. So it's obviously the financial packages of these things has, has changed. But these constant space analogies, I think, are self-harming and serve very little purpose, as they do not ignore the fact that thousands of deep sea biologists, ecologists, geologists, chemists, physicists have, since the days of Challenger Expedition, never ceased in their work in making new discoveries, and sampling and diving, surveying. We know so much more about the deep sea now than we did five years ago and ten years ago. And these statements come along and just trash all that and say, now we know nothing about it. This is the reason why a lot of deep sea people stand up and are constantly barking about why don't people care about the deep sea? Is it people probably don't care about the deep sea because we keep telling them we know nothing about it? As a community, we're absolutely as guilty. Multiple grant applications and multiple papers I've read cite the, the moon analogy, which, as you say, is not only out of date, it's not even that applicable. It doesn't really work. But how do you get people to care about something when you're telling them that we know less about that than we know about a dry rock floating in space? We don't feel like we know the deep sea because we can't see it. The, the moon is right there. You can see it and your, your mind has accepted it. And think about how strange that actually is, you know, especially for our ancient ancestors that didn't understand about astral bodies. There's a giant glowing rock suspended in the sky, but we have internalised that and we've accepted that exists. But we cannot directly see the deep sea. We cannot look at it. It's always going to be obscured by this water. And so it sits in our subconscious and it gives us all these strange emotions. And, and unfortunately, even the scientific community sort of plays on that, on that, you know, what could be hidden there? And we're sort of in this podcast trying to preach a much more realistic approach of what is really there? What is the, the, the mechanisms that are going on? And the interesting thing is, once you go through that looking glass and you learn enough to appreciate it, it's far, far more interesting than just a spooky story about we don't know what's there. Just trying to dismantle that unnecessary enigmatization of, of it and try and make it, and just, just get people to appreciate it for what it is. And it is interesting enough on its own. A big part of working in science is scientific publishing. It grazes the public consciousness, but it's, it's worth understanding what goes on, and it's worth understanding what we mean when we say peer review. So we publish our scientific findings in scientific journals uh, and universities and other institutions sort of subscribe to these things. So a lot of the criticism is often that this is a bit of a walled garden, but scientists for their own careers, they want you to read their work. And also just for the greater human good, they want other people to read their work as well. So we, we have little loopholes. We do try and make our papers accessible to everyone. And in order to maintain the quality of that, in order for that to mean something, uh, we go through this process called peer review. So you'll, you'll produce this document that outlines this experiment you've done and the results you found 
uh, and what you think it means. So everything you state within that document should be proven or heavily indicated by your experiment. And anything else you put in there should be referenced, it should be cited. I can't just say, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the deep sea. I can't just say that in a scientific paper unless my paper has proven that. Then uh, an editor of the journal, they will distribute that to anonymous experts around the world. And I think this is something that's really quite nice about science. At the moment, that is unpaid. So the scientific community, just to maintain the rigor and honesty and quality of science, sacrifice a huge amount of their time reviewing and challenging each other's work. And even if you adore the paper, even if you think it's incredibly useful, it's a great experiment, your role as a reviewer is to pick holes in it, is to find anything that doesn't stand up to scrutiny and to honestly sort of tear it apart. Tom and I happen to know the editor of a journal, a deep sea journal too. So his name is Professor Monty Prieud. He's a fish biologist, professor of zoology. He spent most of his time in the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's also the fellow of the Institute of Fisheries Management too. And he's a recipient of the Beverton Medal for the Fisheries Society of the British Isles. And he retired from Aberdeen in 2013, but he's one of these guys who will never truly retire. As soon as he retired, he uh, wrote a book on deep sea fishes with Cambridge University Press. And then he took up the role as editor-in-chief of the journal Deep Sea Research Part 1. Hello, Alan. Good to hear from you. I would say you're probably the only person I know who can articulate the finer points of animal physiology in a way that I think is actually understandable. So synergies between engineering and biology, do you see the two things as being quite similar? Yes, they're very much intertwined. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, we were taught by Professor McNeil Alexander, who wrote a book called Animal Mechanics. And what he did was in his book was to show that you can apply mechanical engineering principles to how fish swim, how kangaroos jump, and so on. So that set me off thinking about this, how animals work. Uh, they have to obey the laws of thermodynamics. They have to maintain energy balance. And so uh, right at the start of my career as a zoologist, I started thinking of animals as sophisticated machines. Uh, to be a deep-sea biologist, inevitably, uh, both from the point of view of understanding the animals and figuring out how you're going to observe and study them, you need to have an engineering background of some sort. So I also was just reading your latest paper in Journal of Experimental Biology, and it's about shark buoyancy, which I think exemplifies that point. It is, it is very much an engineering paper about shark buoyancy, and it follows on I think quite a lot from that paper you published in 2006, which was the sharks don't go deeper than 3,000 metres. Uh, it all sort of ties in as why why do some animals have a have an ultimate depth on it, which isn't full ocean depth. But I remember there being some sort of epiphany moment at some conference about the absence of sharks in the abyss. Yes, so I'd been invited to a meeting in Germany by the... European Elasmobranchs Association, and they asked me to give a talk entitled Sharks in the Abyss. And the abyss officially is water deeper than 3,000 meters. And then I thought about it, and I thought, well, there aren't any sharks that I know of that live deeper than 3,000 meters. And so I stood up and I said, well, this title is erroneous, and I showed all the records we had. 
uh, whereupon an argument ensued. But the next day, Rainer Froza, who is the uh, manager of Fish Base at the time, uh, stood up to give a special talk where he had gone through the entire Fish Base searching for any sharks that lived deeper than 3,000 meters. And he confirmed that what I had said was right. And then we subsequently got together and wrote the paper on the absence of sharks from the abyss. So it was a sort of unexpected finding that had been creeping up on the scientific community for decades, but nobody had put it into so many words. Did you come across anything similar when you wrote the book, Deep Sea Fishies? Because I know from writing a book myself that sometimes there are things that are in hindsight clearly obvious, but you don't see them until you've collated a whole bunch of different disparate data sets. Is there anything that came up during that? Well, this was the problem. I mean, when I wrote section on buoyancy at great depth, uh, one of the problems for any animal that's diving deep is that if they have a gas bladder, the gas gets compressed and the volume of the buoyancy organ decreases. And so the animal would start sinking. And similarly, oil gets compressed at high pressure. But what I realized was that actually nobody had proper data for the compressibility of oxygen and indeed shark oil at these very high pressures. And that's why I ended up writing uh, these recent papers. Uh, so it's only when you try and put together the argument, you realize that there are holes in it. Yeah. So going back and looking at your, your career, I, would, I think your career looks like one of two halves. I mean, you spent quite a long time doing a lot of shallow water physiology and remember you telling yeah. me lots of stories of salmon and rainbow trout and stuff like that. And there was a, a particular moment, I think, where you sort of jumped from shallow to deep. Can you tell us about that? I had one experience during my, when I was a student, when I was invited out on the maiden voyage of the Royal Research Ship Challenger. But then you're right, I didn't do anything about deep sea stuff for a long time. But then I was invited to a conference in Naples by a Bruno Totter. And he was interested in work I'd done on fish hearts. And he asked me to come and give a lecture about the uh, hearts of the trout. And so I went and gave this talk. And I got talking to um, some people from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And they said, hey, what have you thought of working on deep sea stuff? Uh, George Somero, it was. And so George Somero invited me to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He invited me to give a big lecture, and I was talking about how I've been telemetering heart rate using acoustic transmitters on wild salmon and fish living in the wild. And it turned out that the transmitters I had been building actually worked at high pressure. We did some tests, and so then I was invited on a on a cruise with Ken Smith out in the Pacific Ocean, where we started tracking deep sea fish uh, hundreds of miles north of Hawaii. And everything we did, there was a brand new discovery. Um, and I got very excited about this because we're, you know, working on salmon and trout, which have been studied for centuries, you could only make small incremental adv advances. But the deep sea was very, very exciting. And I switched to deep sea research from then on. So you're now the editor of Deep Sea Research. How long have you been doing that now? I've been uh, editor-in-chief for, uh, uh, I think it's about five, six years. So I'm genuinely interested in this. I mean, is, is it a full-time job? What's, what's the sort of average day like for an editor-in-chief? I suppose I handle about 20, 30 papers a, a month. 
so it's one or one every day or every other day. And then I have a team of associate editors and I farm the papers out, specialist associate editors, or if it's a field where I'm an expert myself, such as deep sea fishes, I'll, I'll handle paper myself. But normally we send papers out to reviewers uh, and it's the reviewers we have to thank because they're the ones who do the hard work and we have to ask them kindly to volunteer work that all scientists have to do is, is reviewing each other's work. So do you, know, do you have an idea roughly what the acceptance to rejection rate is? Do you, do you find yourself spending like a week constantly writing rejection letters? <laughs> no, no I, I like the days when I'm accepting papers. There's no, nothing like a good morning when they accept three papers in a row, you know. What I really hate doing is, uh, is rejecting papers. Well, thanks very much, Monty Priet. Thanks for your time. Uh, and good luck with Deep Sea Research Part 1. Thank you. So that was Monty. Uh, really grateful to have him. His paper on sharks being absent from the greater depths of the ocean is is freely available. So I will post a link to that and anyone who's interested in that can look into it. Scientific writing can seem a little bit dry at the start. We'll try and cherry pick the ones that are quite accessible. In Monty's paper looking at the sharks, he, he noticed that they very rarely go beyond 3,000 meters deep, which knocks out all of the sort of abyssal plain. It knocks out most of the planet actually. So sharks and deep sea sharks tend to be fairly isolated around land masses and sea mounts. And there's a few different reasons for that. Uh, one of the key ones is that sharks use their liver for buoyancy. They use the oils of their liver in order to make themselves neutrally buoyant. And most deep sea fish, the sort of bony fishes, they use their liver as a long-term energy store. It's expensive to maintain your buoyancy by making fats, basically. It's far easier to have a swim bladder like the bony fishes do, which is basically an internal balloon that you inflate and deflate. But of course, there's not a great deal of food in the deep sea and sharks may go a long period of time between meals and you can't start burning through your source of buoyancy, the thing that's keeping you up in the water, in order to hopefully find your next meal. Sharks tend to actually break down their tissue rather than their livers. The liver is too important for buoyancy. Basically, the, the way that sharks operate becomes more and more expensive energetically once you go beyond about 2,000 meters. And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.